Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the 10th episode of On Air. Today we will discuss B-cell lymphomas with Ralph Kirpas, Director of Institute of Cell Biology at the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany. Hello, Ralph. Hello. The podcast is hosted by me, Ulrich Sterfbo. And by me, I'm Ching Ding. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So, Ralph, one of the popular questions that we like to start off with is, is a little bit of under, uh, getting to know our invitee. And so one of the questions is, you know, what fascinates you about adaptive immune receptors and how did you become interested in them? Well, that's, that's a good one. So I'm, I'm interested actually in adaptive immune receptors since my, my diploma thesis because I started off uh, doing my biology diploma in Cologne uh, with, in the department of Klaus Royeski at, at the time. So a well, well-known expert for B-cell immunology. And I um, had a, a diploma project on chronic lymphocytic leukemia where we actually analyzed the B-cell receptor of, of a case of, of CLL and uh, and then from the beginning on, I also started to work on normal B cells, and I found it fascinating how the immune system manages to generate such a broad diversity of B cell receptors or specificities to be really prepared um, to make antibodies against all possible types of antigens that might come into the body and and might um, make an offense to the body. So I found this fascinating, the, the primary diversification, but then also during my PhD, I started to work on the germinal center reaction, where the further diversification, as you know, of antigen-activated B-cell takes place. I became fascinated by the process of somatic hypermutation, uh, by which the, um, the B-cell receptor is further refined and really adapting itself in a very elegant process of affinity maturation uh, to the needs of the specific immune response. So you're almost in your interest of a piece of receptors. You almost started from the very beginning and worked your way all the way through the entire process of providing high specificity antibodies. Exactly. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, the, the primary diversification or the primary generation of the beta receptor repertoire to understand VDJ recombination um, during early B cell development, but then actually with a with a bigger focus in my own research on the on the germinal center reaction, so on the T-cell dependent immune responses and somatic hypermutation and aspects of class-rich recombination in normal B-cells. And actually what, what I found also particular fascinating in my own way is that more or less from the beginning on, so from my PhD on, I had this dual interest in normal B-cell development in the human as well as lymphoma pathogenesis. And I think that was really, for me, like a really fruitful thing so uh, things we learned about the normal germinal center reaction then very much helped us 
in the in the parallel to better understand processes of lymphoma pathogenesis. So, for example, chromosomal translocations in B cell lymphomas was an interest of mine, and then understanding what happens during Harper mutation or class with recombination helped us also to understand where and how the processes of uh, chromosomal reciprocal chromosomal translocations involving the immunoglobulin loci take place. So that was, I think, for us um, or for me also a very nice um, strategy to combine work on normal B-cell differentiation with work on lymphoma pathogenesis. Is that an unusual combination, um, so studying both healthy and diseased B-cells? I think, actually, it's not so frequently done. So let's say a lot of lymphoma work is done by hematologists or by hematopathologists, so more in clinical departments. And those people then have more, let's say, typically a medical background and come from the side of the disease and are typically not so close to, let's say, molecular, normal molecular immunology, whereas many of the, of the real-world experts in normal B-cell processes, um, they often focus on mouse models and really on the normal system and and frequently do not have such a close link then to, to patient samples and to, to analyze B-cell leukemias and lymphomas. So I think that was really a strength, the combination that I had in Cologne, working together with Klaus Rajewski, but then in close collaboration with the pathology and hematology departments in, in Cologne, where there was much interest in lymphoma research. So I think that was really a, a great thing for my own career, that I had their input and mentorship from, from both sides, actually, during my PhD and, and the early postdoc time. Yeah, I was really lucky there, Yeah, I must say. I find it so fascinating in the lymphoma pathogenesis where it's like snapshots of how the B cell development and, and you speak about that antigen experience and maturation. Um, what was, I guess, during your career something that, came out of it that you did not expect, I guess, that is different from what you would have anticipated from the normal system. Yeah. I think the most fascinating thing in this regard was then our work in the mid, mid of the 90s, like yeah, already 25 years ago, on classical Hodgkin lymphoma. So at that time, when we started also to work on, on classical Hodgkin lymphoma, it was still unclear where this type of lymphoid malignancy comes from. It was actually not clear whether it's a B-cell or a T-cell lymphoma or some event of cell fusions or some myeloid leukemia or lymphoma because the tumor cells, the Hodgkin and Ritz-Sternberg cells, they do not look at all anymore like B-cells. But we tested the hypothesis whether perhaps these cells might derive from B-cells because there were some cell lines considered to be Hodgkin cell lines which carried IG gene rearrangements. And so we, um, during my, my PhD thesis, we established an, an approach to microdissect single Hodgkin reed Sternberg cells from tissue sections and then simply test the hypothesis whether these cells might be B cells by looking for the rearranged IGV genes. And, and then we were, to, perhaps to our own surprise, very successful in that. So indeed, it turned out that practically all cases of classic Hodgkin lymphoma carried rearranged V-genes and they were monoclonal. So that was the first direct proof that Hodgkin lymphoma is a B-cell malignancy. Um, although the Hodgkin cells do not look anymore phenotypically uh, much like B-cells, they still have some B-cell markers, but, but most B-cell typical genes are downregulated. And then the real surprising thing was that when we then 
acquired more cases and looked in detail at the rearranged V-genes, we recognized that in a quarter of the cases, the rearrangement, the originally functional rearrangement carried what we called crippling or destructive mutations. And I think that was really a surprise. I think actually in our very first um, paper on that, the PNAS paper from 1994, when we just had two cases of classic Hodgkin lymphoma, um, we more or less misinterpreted a case which had only non-functional rearrangements and we speculated, oh, that might be a precursor B-cell because we found non-productive rearrangements on both heavy chain alleles. But later, when we analyzed more cases and published, I think, in 1996 in JXMET, then we recognized there were more cases where there were destructive mutations like stop codons or small frame shift insertions, deletions within originally functional V-gene rearrangements, either the heavy chain or the light chain. And that then made the point that we interpret these as cases in a way that these were germinal center B cells that acquired at some time um, during their development destructive mutations. And that was then surprising to find such non-functional germinal center B cells as lymphoma cells because it was well known at that time. Um, so again, uh, an example where the normal research and the lymphoma research complemented each other, that there's a very stringent selection in the germinal center and that normally all germinal center B cells which acquire all any type of destructive mutation, be it a stop codon or a frame shift mutation or even replacement mutations which reduce the affinity to the antigen, that uh, or the, which destabilize the protein folding, that they are very stringently counter-selected and such germinal center B cells are very quickly eliminated by apoptosis in a default program. So apparently, and that was then yeah, the main surprise, apparently classic Hodgkin's lymphoma is derived from what we then call pre-apoptotic germinal center B cells. So B cells that were destined normally to undergo apoptosis but that somehow were rescued from apoptosis and then could further transform to give rise to this strange lymphoma, um, uh, classic Hodgkin lymphoma, where then also the lymphoma cells lost most of their B-cell identity, as we then call it. So that was really a surprise, and it took some time to really understand this. And But this now, 20 years later, I think still holds true. I mean, further studies also from other groups then confirmed that that in a fraction of Hodgkin cases, you have these destructive mutation, which is most likely only the tip of the iceberg. So we found definitely destructive mutations in 25% in of the cases, but we think that this actually holds true for more or less all of the cases because many unfavorable mutations which cause apoptotic death of germinal center B cells, you cannot directly see because this will be replacement mutations which reduce the affinity. And as we do not know the antigen, we, of course, for the Hodgkin cases, we cannot tell which of the mutation are, let's say, make a problem in, in folding of the heavy chain or the light chain or in heavy light chain pairing or reduce the affinity. So we think this this uh, yeah, this is like a quarter of the cases with clearly dist or unequivocal destructive mutations is only part of the answer and that actually in general Hodgkin cases derive from from germinal center B cells which normally would have undergone apoptosis and I think that was really fascinating and that's one of the reasons why I find this lymphoma still so fascinating. How did you in the 90s, end of the 90s, how did you look at the um, VG recombination? 
I mean, that was, of course, I mean, we did all the Hodgkin work at that time, as I briefly said, by microdissection. So that was in the beginning very laborious. So when we did this in the mid of 90s, we used glass capillaries. So that was like hydraulic microdissection with the devices that were used by others, for example, to, for oocyte injections for, trans for transgenic mice. So that was the, the equipment that we had. But then we needed one glass capillary for each single cell that we isolated. So it was really, let's say, um, work that took uh, days and nights to, to get enough cells. And then we, we used single cell V-gene PCR, so a two-rounded PCR from the DNA of the single cells, um, which were just opened by proteinase K digestion and, and heating. And then we made with, with pools of V-gene primers. So we had primer sets for all um, heavy chain, kappa and lambda light chain families of, of human immunoglobulin genes and, and then combined with J um, segment primers. And then we made a semi-nasty two-rounded PCR. And then for each product we obtained after the second round of PCR, we, we performed Sanger sequencing. And I mean, the microdissection has become much easier, let's say, let's say 20, uh, 10 or 20 years later, because now we're also using uh, laser-based microdissection devices. So where a laser beam helps to isolate the cells and actually helps to catapult the cell from the tissue section into a cap of a PCR tube. And, and then it's, let's say, possible in a day to get 3,000 instead of only 50 single cells. Um, I think that's a comparison uh, for nearly the same time. But still, um, for this work on Hodgkin, then we, we do for each single cell a single PCR reaction, two-rounded, and then still doing Sanger sequencing. That is not, I mean, if you really want to look at the single cells, next generation sequencing uh, does not really help, help much. Um, so uh, when, when we did this, or when we are still doing this, uh, for this type of work, we are using uh, classical Sanger sequencing of the, of the PCR amplificates, yeah. Oh, so single-cell RNA sequencing doesn't work? We hardly ever did single-cell RNA sequencing, or never actually did this. Um, you could say you should have some more molecules, but then you also have to keep in mind you are cutting through the section, so you will actually perhaps smear even some RNA from one cell over the other. So there is perhaps even a bigger risk. In principle, you can get also from these microdissected cells RNA, and we did this and published this. But for these types of approaches, we pooled them. So we microdissected single Hodgkin Reed Sternberg cells from frozen tissue sections but then pooled them. Uh, to, and, and, and of course, this only works with the laser-based microdissection because then you have dry sections without any buffer over it. And this helps to preserve the RNA quality. I think in the, in the old hydraulic, sect, uh, hydraulic microdissection, where you have then PBS buffer above the section to be able to isolate the cells with the glass capillaries, then I think you would you would free RNAs from the cells and that would, would destroy your whole RNA. But with this laser-based microdissection where you dry the section before you start with the microdissection, you can isolate cells. And we did this, for example, when pooling between 1,000 and 3,000 Hodgkin cells as I, as I said, this is possible with laser microdissection. And then we pool uh, yeah, something like 3,000 single Hodgkin cells, then isolate the RNA from those pools, and then made initially gene chips analysis. But principle, this works also, also with RNA sequencing uh, from those 
RNAs of, of the pooled um, several thousand Hodgkin cells. So we made some some papers on that in previous years um, on affymetrics gene chip analysis, where we compared the, the differential gene expression of, of Hodgkin cells from like, like 15 different cases and then compared that to other lymphomas and to normal B cells. And I think that was very important to identify deregulated gene expression in Hodgkin cells. So that was with RNA from microdissected cells. Yeah. I see. Speaking of the non-Hodgkin lymphomas, um, in these crippling mutations where they have uh, non-functional uh, BCRs, is that true for non-Hodgkin lymphomas as well, or is that unique to Hodgkin lymphomas? It's rather unique, not completely. So interestingly, there is one other, mainly one other lymphoma where this is regularly seen, and this is post-transplant lymphoproliferative diseases. So lymphomas, monoclonal lymphomas, um, mostly in the end stage that develop in uh, post-transplant situations. Here, the interesting thing is that um, also in these or on these lymphomas, similar to Hodgkin, the lymphoma cells are frequently infected by Epstein-Barr virus. And there is the idea that viral latent membrane proteins replace the function of the B-cell receptor. So I think that is fascinating that both in many cases of classic Hodgkin lymphoma and in this uh, post-transplant lymphoproliferative diseases, PTLD, often abbreviated, um, you have a latency 2 or latency 3 profile of EBV, and there is latent membrane protein 2A produced, and this mimics the B-cell receptor. So also it attracts similar signaling molecules um, like the B-cell receptor, and that might be the reason how actually these cells are rescued from apoptosis. So if these cells are EBV infected at the time when they acquire these destructive mutations, then most likely uh, EBV proteins, LMP1, which mimics CD40, and LMP2A, which mimics the B-cell receptor signaling, um, could replace this and, and might be the, the, the key rescue um, um, element uh, for these lymphomas. There are a few other cases of other non-Hodgkin lymphomas where the cells can become BCR negative. So I know, for example, that um, there are some Burkitt lymphomas um, where, where, although in general it has been reported or as textbook knowledge that they are BCR positive, but if one carefully looks, one finds a few percent of cases of Burkitt lymphoma where apparently the, the transformation process has gone so far um, and uh, the cells acquire so many oncogenic lesions that they do not depend anymore on, on the B-cell receptor. But in general, it's quite amazing um, how strong the continued B-cell receptor expression um, in, B in B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas is. And there is even perhaps one point I may add here that was also quite intriguing when we, when we and others started to work on translocations. So if you think of chromosomal translocations that target the immunoglobulin loci, either by mistakes of VDJ recombination, class switching, or hypermutation, for each of these three processes, statistically, there is a 50-50 chance that these translocations hit the functional heavy chain allele or the non-functional heavy chain allele. Because on both alleles, you have class switching. On both alleles, you have hypermutation. But the interesting, interesting thing is that in practically all non-Hodgkin lymphomas where you have translocations into the Ig loci, like uh, affecting BCL2 or BCL1 or MYC, for example, or BCL6, you always find those translocations on the non-productive allele. 
And we and others conclude from that that if even if something like a, a MUC translocation hits the heavy chain locus and MUC is now activated as a very strong oncogene, but if this destroys the productive heavy chain allele, the cell will not give rise to a lymphoma because you do not find Burkitt lymphomas where the MUC translocation is on the functional heavy chain allele or one of the functional light chain alleles where there you also also sometimes find MUC. Um, so the fact that you that you if you look carefully, you always find the MUC translocation on the non-expressed heavy chain allele or non-functional one indicates there is a strong selective pressure that even at the time point when the lymphoma precursor is hit by this oncogenic translocation, the cell still depends on the BCR expression as a main survival signal, not only for normal B cells, but also for, for nearly all B cell lymphomas. That's really fascinating. I guess that's it kind of alludes to, at least to me, as the more classical immunologist, that if there's a BCR, there's an antigen. <laughs> uh, good, very good point. Yeah, I think one has to distinguish that. I mean, as you as you certainly know, also one in terms of BCR signaling, one now distinguishes in general the so-called tonic signaling and the activating signaling. And the tonic signaling, in a way, goes back on on very elegant work from Klaus Rajewski's group from the Elegant Mouse Models, where he showed, now I think also nearly 20 years ago, that even resting uh, normal B cells are constitutively depending on the presence of the BCR. And if you, in a Crelox in, um, a conditional system, eliminate the BCR from a naive or memory B cell in the mouse, then after a short time, the B cell will die by apoptosis, which gave rise to, yeah, to the concept that there is a, a tonic signaling of the BCR just showing its presence as a main, let's say, survival control system of the, of the B cell. And if the BCR is lost and, let's say, an automatic apoptosis program is, is induced, or at least the cell have a very shortened survival time. And, and I think this is also still active in human B cell lymphoma. So that, let's say, on the one hand, I think that nearly all B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma still express a BCR is linked to this dependency of B cells on tonic BCR signaling. But on the other hand, you are right, there is now emerging evidence that in quite a number of B cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas, there is also an antigen and that at least during early stages of lymphoma pathogenesis, there is a continuous triggering, let's say activating triggering of the BCR. Um, and this is partly, for example, um, indicated from the fact that a surprising large number of lymphomas has an autoreactive B cell receptor. So, for example, in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, the most frequent leukemia in elderly humans, um, a large fraction of the cases has been shown to express autoreactive BCR or even the BCR is autoreactive to itself. So that was elegant work from Hassan Yuma from Ulm um, several years ago, showing that in a at least in a fraction of cases, the BCR binds to itself. So the, the ultimate autoantigen, you could say. And therefore, there is the idea that in CLL, for example, but also in a fraction of so-called mold or marginal zone lymphomas, um, the BCR is often autoreactive. And then, of course, you can postulate you have a chronic stimulus and, and that this then contributes to lymphoma pathogenesis. Um, and perhaps not only during the early stages, let's say, to drive the initial proliferation of the cell, but likely even during continuous proliferation. And another 
example, I think, which is quite intriguing is that um, there are also lymphomas where perhaps not an autoantigen plays a role, but a chronic antigenic triggering. And this is, uh, for example, the case in some chronic viral infections. Um, so it was quite amazing um, to see that in some patients, or that, first of all, to, I have to say that patients chronically infected by hepatitis C virus have an increased risk to develop lymphomas. And then it was shown that some of the HCV lymphomas at least are specific for the virus, which is always present in the liver or in the, in the body of those chronic patients. And there was an amazing finding that at least if you have a low-grade lymphoma, like splenic margin, marginal zone lymphomas, which are one of the frequent types of lymphomas in chronic hepatitis C virus infected patients, and there were patients where it was successful to eliminate the virus by antiviral treatment, and then also the, the lymphoma went away. So without chemotherapy for the lymphoma, it was quite spectacular to see that at least in early stages and when these were still low-grade lymphomas, you could cure a B-cell lymphoma in patients with chronic HCV infection when you eliminated the virus um, by antiviral therapy. So this is indirect, but also indicates that perhaps here in those um, lucky patients, you could say, um, the, the lymphoma was still dependent on triggering by, by the a hepatitis C virus. So when, when the physicians were successful to eliminate the virus, then a major growth factor for the lymphoma went away, and this then led to regression of, of the lymphoma. So, so these are, I think, a number of examples indeed showing that, um, that antigenic triggering can not only be as a tonic survival signal be important for the B-cell lymphomas, but might even be an activating, classical activating uh, antigenic trigger for, or provide an antigenic trigger for the lymphoma cells. I think it's easy to understand how this tonic and activating signal from, from viruses um, come about, but how can it be that a B-cell receptor is, if I understood correctly, is autoreactive against itself? Wouldn't this be, be eliminated a long time ago? I mean, in principle, you could say also, in general, let's say, autoreactive receptor. I think that would be, in, in a way, the same situation uh, if, if the B cell would be, uh, let's say, would, would recognize some, some red blood cell autoantigens or something like that. So, I mean, this is, of course, as you know, the general uh, tolerance mechanisms that normally happen. And, uh, but as we know, I mean, we know autoimmune diseases exist. So this elimination of autoreactive B cells either by clonal deletion already in the bone marrow or later um, by, by tolerance mechanisms in the periphery is, is somewhat leaky and yeah, can give rise to autoimmune diseases. I mean, we know actually that quite a number of them, the real autoreactive B-cell receptors or antibodies that you find in, in rheumatoid arthritis patients or so, they are typically somatically mutated. So some of these receptors actually may develop in the germinal center so that they were, let's say, only lowly autoreactive or not autoreactive at all as naive B cells. So that's why they survived um, the initial tolerance um, selection process during early B cell development. But then in the process of somatic hypermutation, then, I mean, that is well known that can happen that due, due to somatic mutations, uh, perhaps a very low autoreactive antibody can become high affinity. 
And then normally you could argue, yeah, by well, but there should not be all reactive T helper cells around. So this cell then should die in a way by neglect in the germinal center because there are normally no T helper cells, which are then specific for the autoantigen. But apparently this does not always work. So indeed, most of the well-described high affinity autoantibodies are somatically mutated. And so there, let's say, decisive events might happen in the germinal center so that cells acquire new or higher affinity autoreactivity in the germinal center. And then apparently the counter selection is not 100% efficient and that then, yeah, cells might survive. And perhaps at that stage, this is speculation, but if then at that stage, for example, the cells already carry oncogenic events like a BCL2 translocation, which is anti-apoptotic, this may then promote that the cells are not or can no longer be efficiently eliminated by the normal tolerance mechanisms because the oncogenic hits that the, that the pre-malignant cell might have at that stage might already prevent uh, the normal elimination, which is otherwise also functioning in the germinal center to get rid of autoreactive B cells. But then I think, yeah, I think the if the cell has already acquired oncogene or tumor suppressor gene mutations, that might then promote that such autoreactive B cells survive and then can further develop into a fully malignant clone. So is somatic hypermutation always involved in this or do you also have, have lymphomas that, that, are, uh, that, that develop from naive cells? Very, very good point. Um, the answer is, I think, let's say, most than 90% of the cases of lymphomas are germinal center experienced. So might come directly from germinal center B cells or from post-germinal center B cells, so plasma cells or memory B cells, but then have also the germinal center experience. The main examples of mature B cell malignancies, uh, which are pre-germinal center in the sense of being unmutated, is a large fraction of mental cell lymphomas, some splenic marginal, marginal zone lymphomas, and about half of the cases of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Those are mostly, or, or, or let's say half of the cases in each of the three entities around in, uh, that are unmutated. Although, for example, in the case of CLL, um, there is the idea that although half of the cases have unmutated V-gene, but they, that they are nevertheless antigen experienced. So that they still might have seen, let's say, chronic antigenic stimulation, so perhaps more in a like of T helper cell independent type and therefore without a germinal center. Um, but, but there are indications also based on their gene expression and of, on their frequent autoreactivity also among the unmutated CLL uh, that there could be an antigenic trigger, but then without um, a, a proper germinal center reaction. But overall, and, and that's, I think that shows the dangerous um, uh, dangerous situation in the germinal center. If you overall look, as you well know, in the human, in the peripheral blood, and but also in the lymphoid organs, you could by and large say about 50 to 60% of the human B cells in a healthy adult are naive B cells, and about 40, 45% are memory B cells. But as I said, nearly more than 90% of the lymphomas are germinal center experience. So apparently the risk to become a malignant cell is much higher for a germinal center B cell than for a pre-germinal center B cell. And I mean, now we have the good idea, okay, this is due, for example, to the massive clonal expansion in the germinal center and through the, to these dangerous processes 
of somatic harping mutation and class switching because they are main causes for chromosomal translocations. So some chromosomal translocations happen during VDJ recombination in the bone marrow already in B-cell precursors. That's the best-known example there is B-cell 1 in mental cell lymphoma and B-cell 2 in follicular lymphoma, which happen in pro to pre-B-cells. But all, nearly all the other translocations of MYC, of B-cell 6, of, of dozens of other genes, they are typically happening as mistakes of hypermutation or class switching in the germinal center. Um, and in addition, we now know since a few years, or actually quite some years, that the process of somatic harping mutation is not 100% specific to the rearranged V genes, but that with a lower mutation rate, harping mutation also hits other genes. And this includes also oncogenes. So for example, BCL6, a major oncogene in diffuse large B cell lymphomas, is actually found mutated in, in a third of normal memory B cells. So it has one or two point mutations in the mutation window. And, is, and it is mutated in that window in the, in the first KB of its um, RNA in, I, I think, about more than half of the cases of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So, so I think the massive proliferation in the germinal center and this genetic processes um, with their byproducts of class switching and HAPA mutation are the main explanations why so many um, uh, types of human B-cell lymphomas derived from germinal center B-cells or germinal center experience B-cells. Trying to pull it back to um, your talk, uh, your point about uh, CLL, leukemias, uh, mainly because, again, this, this uh, podcast is about the antigen um, immune repertoire. And so my experience with CLLs is that uh, BCR sequencing or stereotyping can be beneficial in terms of classification. Um, it, it, and I haven't seen that uh, carry forward uh, into the lymphoma world. Um, do, you, do you have an idea of why it hasn't been as popular or, or is it a different um, beast in, in terms of, of the biology? Good, good point. I think in terms of clinical impact, indeed, CLL stands out. So perhaps also partly what you refer is, as I mentioned earlier, about half of the cases of CLL have mutated genes, about half have unmutated. And that, I think, is quite important or also clinically relevant. It has turned out that this is actually a major prognostic marker for the disease. So the unmutated cases have a worse clinical outcome are more difficult to treat than the CLL with mutated immunoglobulin genes. And that was, I think, a major, when that became clear, that here the IgV gene sequences are helpful uh, for as a prognostic marker and perhaps then also giving insight how, let's say, how urgent therapy is needed. I think that was a major push uh, to, to sequence over and over hundreds or thousands of, of uh, 10,000 of cases of CLL First of all, to look whether the, the regions are mutated or unmutated, but then actually the next exciting finding was what you already referred to, Ching, is that then it turned out that there are stereotyped groups of CLL, so different patients which have highly similar B-cell receptor at the amino acid level, both heavy and light chain genes, and that's uh, I even groups where this and it's also linked to the clinical behavior. So there is, I think, one group of using the VH321 gene or something like that, which is actually standing out as a, as a particular subgroup of, let's say, patients with mutated receptor, but still a, a bad prognosis like unmutated CLL. 
So that was really, I think, therefore, there is a big group of people um, being interested in that. And partly, I mean, this was also analyzed in B-cell lymphomas, but, um, and there are also a few instances. So, for example, there are some lymphomas with a very biased V-gene usage. So, for example, primary central nervous system lymphomas, nearly 40% of the cases use the famous VH434 gene, um, which is also of importance in, in some other lymphomas and in some splenic marginal zone lymphomas, you have a very biased V-genes. But I think this has less found the way to the clinic because in those instances, I do not see, let's say, a strong clinical link as, 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 I, as it is present in CLL. And therefore, I think it's of interest for, for basic researchers uh, um, to better understand this and then also perhaps as a help to identify, um, let's say, antigenic specificities or so. But um, it's, I think it's not, I, I'm not aware of any example among the B-cell lymphomas um, where, where this is so clinically relevant to define prognostic subgroups, for example. So then I guess that leads me to uh, a follow-up question about, um, you know, outside of uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemias, do you think uh, B-cell receptor repertoire sequencing could be useful uh, clinically either for diagnostic purposes um, or prognostic purposes in the future? I mean, let's say the repertoire as such is perhaps not so relevant, but the receptor of the B-cell as such, of the lymphoma, I think, which you would do with repertoire sequencing in, in, in a sense because you do not before and know which V-gene is used, I think this is something you could use, for example, to for the follow for the um, following of the uh, for the clinical follow up. Sorry, um, so for example, to look for mineral residue disease. I think that is a major topic. So in lymphomas, where you have the chance to cure the patient, um, or you want to know when a when a relapse of the lymphoma uh, comes up, then I think since since quite some time. Um, that is one way, besides perhaps other groups pr prefer to do fax analysis, let's say with looking for monoclonal kappa lambda and some surface marker staining. So this is, I think, also um, uh, some hematologists have, have brought this very advanced. But of course, with fax analysis, uh, you are, I think you are coming relatively quickly to a sensitivity border. But I think, let's say, if you first at the time of diagnosis define the clonal immunoglobulin rearrangements of the lymphoma, then you have a very elegant and highly specific clonal marker. And then you could use this, let's say, during the course of the disease uh, to search then to, to quantify, let's say, the remaining V genes in the background of the, of the normal repertoire and then uh, try to, to define, uh, let's say, um, at the end of therapy, whether you have eliminated all the, the lymph uh, lymphoma or leukemia cells or not. It might in some lymphomas be difficult to look at cells because some lymphomas, as you know, or many lymphomas do not have, uh, let's say, a leukemic phase. So they, let's say in some lymphomas, you do not, will not find lymphoma cells much in the blood. But then nowadays, you could think of approaches like with circulating DNA, because also from lymphomas, which do not have lymphoma cells in the blood, you nevertheless find DNA fragments. It's this famous circulating tumor DNA in the peripheral blood. And although these fragments are very short, typically only around 160 base pairs, but I think if you would, would adopt primers, let's say only amplify from framework region three 
to framework region four. So with a, with a V primer and a J primer mix that I think that could be a strategy um, then even using cell-free DNA to monitor uh, elimination of the lymphoma clone um, by by um, yeah deep sequencing of of the of the clonal V gene rearrangement. What do you think is holding the the field back in terms of actually applying this kind of methodology or strategy for MRD? I think it's uh, somewhat laborious. I think you need some experts, some bioinformaticians, or some B cell immunologists who helps let's say to identify the V gene sequences to interpret to interpret them to identify what, what is rearranged V-gene. Then, of course, you have often the problem, in partly what we discussed in a way, um, you will not be successful in, in all cases because the primers will bind in the rearranged V-genes. And then we have the problem, as we just said, many lymphomas are heavily somatically mutated. So often the primers will not bind efficiently to the V-gene framework region 3 or to the JH a gene because if there are mutations at the primer binding sites, the PCR might be inefficient. And therefore, I think um, people looking are for looking are using for alternatives. And there is now also with with a largely increasing knowledge of uh, through exome sequencing of mutated oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes, you can now also buy let's say sets for targeted deep sequencing. Uh, then to look for point mutations or chromosomal translocation breakpoints as an alternative uh, to use uh, the rearranged V genes as a clonal marker. Um, and I think, therefore, that's another strategy people are using right now and which perhaps sometimes might be even easier to interpret than interpret clonal V gene rearrangements because there you need an, an immunologist who can, who can cope with the data. Do you, would you have to, the circulating DNA, do you have to amplify this specifically or wouldn't you be able to just ligate uh, and adapt it to, to all the bits and pieces floating around and then amplify from, from this? That should theoretically be, be possible but then of course I think you would have to massively sequence it because as you know actually the, the circulating DNA is not only from the tumor cells but also from normal dying cells and then if you have the whole genome and then only this small piece of the rearranged V genes so that would be a massive effort let's say if you really would, would generally sequence the libraries that would be something like whole genome sequencing in a way and I think that would be really not, not cost, cost effective so you would have to do some capturing of IG genes or using specific primers um, for, for, for the end of the V segment and, and the J segment uh, to amplify it here short 80 to 120 base pairs fragments perhaps from the circulating DNA. I think that would be much more elegant and more, much more cost-effective than, than doing, uh, let's say, something like whole genome sequencing on, on circulating DNA. I guess to wrap up, um, we are coming up to the hour, uh, is what do you envision in 10 or 20 years from now um, and how our understanding of the BCR repertoire for lymphomas? I think there will be yeah, further developments in things of uh, follow-up of patients, like what we just discussed, this uh, detection of minimal residue disease. I think this is will continue to be interesting and relevant and perhaps will be more refined. So I think this, just what we last discussed, using MRD on, on circulating DNA for lymphoma, so not only do this for leukemias, where you can look for MRD by, by, by using DNA from cells, 
I think this is something that has to be developed to use cell-free circulating DNA for, for lymphomas, which do not have leukemic cells. Um, I think also early stages, there things can develop so that we have not addressed yet in our discussion, but there are some leukemias which have clear precursor states. So that brings us back to CLL. So you certainly know there is a state of monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. So where among the normal B-cell receptor repertoire, you can, if you carefully look already by fax or by PCR, identify the pre-malignant clone, which is uh, considered the precursor lesion of the CLL among the still overwhelming normal B-cell receptor repertoire. And I mean, of course, you cannot do this for all humans over the age of 60 because only, I don't know, 100 of 100,000 people will develop CLL, luckily. But let's say if there is a suspicion or so, I think using receptor sequencing to identify early stages of the disturbance of the BCR repertoire as an indication that a lymphoma might be developing, I think might become more feasible and more interesting. Also, or also in specific situations. So also to give you another example, um, in, in situations, as I mentioned earlier, like in, in chronic H HCV or also HIV-infected persons, where there is an increased risk to develop B-cell lymphomas. So if you have a, let's say, patient risk group, there, it could be worthwhile to, to test for disturbances of the B-cell receptor repertoire so perhaps to earlier see that a lymphoma is developing in, in those um, patient risk groups for lymphoma development. And I think there, we are also interested, we are currently doing a project there on, on analyzing the B-cell receptor repertoire of HIV-infected persons um, to see whether we might detect early stages before a lymphoma develops. Um, so I think these are these are directions, minimal residue disease or early detection of pre-malignant lesions where analyzing the B-cell receptor repertoire might be really helpful um, and where further, further developments are to be expected in the next years. And with these words, we are at the end of the 10th episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at onair at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag onair with two R's. Thank you so much for talking with us, Ralph. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a very stimulating and interesting discussion. We will return in January, where we reflect on the first year of our podcast. All contact information are in the show notes. The podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the comedy podcast Spout Lore. Thank you for listening to On Air. <laughs>